You can uh, begin turning to Acts chapter 18, which is where we're going to uh, be, a portion of Acts chapter 18 today. And Acts chapter 18, as you, uh, you may remember, is the second missionary journey. It's a portion of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had completed, as you can imagine, the first missionary journey and had gone to Jerusalem, did some things there, had come back to his sending church in Antioch, had spent a little bit of time there, and God began to stir in his heart, as many of us are aware, to go back and see those new converts, how they're doing, what's going on in their lives. Paul and Barnabas, the two that were on that particular mission trip, God had used them to accomplish some things. Churches were born. People came to Christ uh, in a new relationship. And in those little communities, little churches were left behind. And Paul cared about how they were doing. You and I, we might pick up the phone, send them a text or something like that just to see how things are going. But for Paul, he got on a boat or whatever it might be, and he made his way there to find out how those believers were doing. And that's a reminder to us that disciples, or excuse me, that evangelism is important. People coming to the faith is important. Getting saved, going to heaven is important. But discipleship is important. And Paul was committed to that, and he wanted to make sure that those young believers there in those communities were growing as disciples. Discipleship is important. Paul was interested in it and concerned about it, even as we might say Paul is concerned about our own discipleship and our own growth, and so obviously is the Lord. Now, the second missionary journey, it began, as I just said, by visiting old friends, but it, it soon morphed into venturing into new lands. And you may recall that that journey, it began with those series of kind of false starts, heading off in this direction, but the Holy Spirit putting up a roadblock, heading off into that one, him putting up a roadblock. And eventually, it became clear that the new places they were to go were places like Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and as we saw last week, Athens. And in every one of those cities, it, it was not just like a piece of cake. It wasn't just some easy thing that they went through. The, the road to get there, the path to get there was difficult. The opposition was constant. Many times that opposition came with physical abuse of some sorts, being uh, beaten, we saw that. Uh, being uh, stoned with rocks thrown at them, thrown in jail, locked in chains. The opposition that came against them on this trip was severe. But Paul and his companions, in this case Silas, they kept persevering. And they kept moving through even those difficulties. And God was blessing their efforts. Not in some great outpouring where thousands and thousands of people were believing. But just a couple here and a couple there and a family here and another one over there and a jailer here, and another fellow there. And little by little, God was growing his church. And as that church was sort of solidified, Paul would move on to the next city, and then the next city, and then the next city. And he had a heart to see people come to Christ, and then to see people grow in Christ. But again, it wasn't easy. And I think that's a helpful reminder for every one of us as we toil in the labor that God has called us to do. It's not just going to be a piece of cake. And it's not going to be easy. And when the, you know, it gets a little bit hard, we don't just stop and say, well, that stinks. I'm going to move on to something easier. And so whether we're talking about being a foreign missionary on some foreign field, or we're little kids that are sitting in a classroom somewhere trying to figure out how to do our math, 
The labor is not always easy. It takes time. The toil takes time. And the fruit of our efforts oftentimes doesn't come for a long time later. And like Paul, we just keep faithfully plugging away. Amen? You would like that? Not typically. No, I just want it to be easy. Piece of cake. And so I can move on. And sometimes I, and I bring it up a little bit because sometimes I see that. Like I, I, I scroll through Facebook and I, I see people that I know, you know, are Christians or whatever, and they post things. And sometimes you get this impression, if I post this prayer, the blessings will come. Right? You ever see this kind of stuff? Or if I do this little thing here, like, and I, so I, I, I make this little statement, I put it out there on Facebook, you know, the riches will come flowing in, you know, this year. And I'm, that's just not how it works. I wish it did. That'd be great. But it's just not how it works. We plug away little by little by little. Now, the last thing that we did uh, when we were together is we closed out our time by considering Paul's efforts in the city of Athens. You may recall Athens was this city uh, that was maybe one of the most religious cities on the earth in the bad sense of the word religion. And there were idols to gods scattered throughout that particular city. It seems that when Paul got to Athens, remember he was chased out of the city first of Thessalonica, then he went to Berea, ministered there, then people came from Thessalonica and harassed him and caused trouble for him. So he left there and he went to Athens. It seems that his purpose for going to the city of Athens was just to hang low, to kind of just sort of fade into the background until his buddies could come. Silas and Timothy, and then together they would sort of figure out. So he, he seems almost like, you know, he was escaping like as a convict and he was going to hide low somewhere or hang low somewhere, uh, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. God, however, changed Paul's plans. And he did so by, as Paul was interacting in that society, God began to do just this stirring work within Paul that impressed upon Paul, you can't just sit quietly. You got to talk to these people. And the thing that in particular uh, challenged Paul was that everywhere he went, he saw idols. And so he begins his conversation with them. He says, I perceive you are a very religious people. A lot of religion that is going on here. And as you may recall, he, he jumped in on that fact of that they had an idol to an unknown God. He said, I want to tell you about that God. Now, this is a perfect place for a guy like Paul to be in some, re- in some respects because the people of Athens loved to talk about anything. Acts 17, 21, you remember that verse? It said this, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, I like talk. (laughs) I like talking. And so Paul, and remember, Paul liked dialoguing. And so this was a great place for the Apostle Paul to be because these people were open to people teaching them and sharing with them something new. However... They were open to talking. They were open to hearing. It does not seem that the people of Athens were very open to applying. And so they heard these things. "Mm, Yes, that's very interesting. I'll give that some thought. You know, this sort of thing. I don't want you to give it thought. I want you to deal with it right now. You know, that's what the Apostle Paul was. And so as we closed out the chapter, you remember, or was, yeah, the chapter, chapter 17, that Paul brought up this idea of the resurrection. And the people just started to mock him. Some of the people. It says that in Acts 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, because in Athens it, it was this world, not the next. And so when they heard of the resurrection, people began to laugh. And others said, no, no, come. It's very interesting. Tell me more. You know, this kind of thing. But they weren't really interested. 
They just wanted to kind of debate and talk and find out new things and chew on it and all that kind of stuff. And Paul wasn't interested in that. And so Acts 17 ends, it says, so Paul went out of their midst. Paul wasn't interested in just wasting time. He wanted to reach people. He believed in eternity. And he believed that though for many of us, eternity is what, 30 years away? Where's Jim? 10 years? Oh, yeah, 30 years away, 40 years, 70 years away for some of us that are young, if all goes as planned. But it's coming. And he knew that it was coming. And so Paul wanted to talk to these folks about serious things. And he wanted them to think seriously about those things. And when they weren't interested in doing that, Paul wasn't interested in playing the game. Paul could have become a hero of Athens. He was very smart. He had a sharp mind. They would have no doubt extended an invitation to him to be a member of the Areopagus that is there. He could have become an Areopagite. He could have had a nice, comfortable life, and he could have went there every day and talked with the people and challenged them and asked questions and lived that life. But that didn't interest Paul. What interested Paul is that people's eternities would be changed. And if these people weren't interested in thinking about those things, Paul wasn't interested in staying there. And so as we see, it says in that verse I just read, so Paul went out of their midst, and the next verse talks about how he begins to head to a new locale. And that's going to be the city of Corinth. We have a, uh, a map. I know some of you love maps. Uh, we have a little, wow, that's not my map. That's a different map. That's high tech. Um, Kyle, look at Kyle with a, with a self-satisfied <laughs> smile. I guess I did that. So you can see Acacia there, is, or Athens, I should say, is the one there in yellow. Maybe it's a little bit hard to see. It's yellow with a black dot in the middle of it. And then to the left of that there uh, is the city of Corinth. Um, not very far away. It looks very close there, but it was about 50 mi miles or so uh, away, one from the other. Corinth was an interesting city uh, because it, it, had, it was a port city of both the body of water on its left as well as the body of water on its right, and so which is the essentially the Asian and the Adriatic. And so it had the it became a key commercial city uh, of that area. There, you'll notice it says Achaia. That's the region that it was from. Remember, cities like Philippi and Thessalonica, they're all from the region to the north Macedonia. And so Acacia there that is mentioned, uh, Corinth was one of those key cities. Now, Athens was sort of this very intellectual, religious city. Um, Corinth was a commercial city. Corinth was very different um, from the city of Athens. Corinth, we might describe as a, as a pretty rough place to go. A lot of activity, a lot of partying uh, in this particular city. It was hardly the type of city that was made up of what we might call church people. There wasn't a lot of church people that were living in the city of Corinth. It was a major city of the Roman Empire, again, because of its important crossroads of where it was located. It, it became the commercial capital of the world, really, in, or that portion of the world. But it was a city where people came in and came out. And cities like that, where you know, the businessmen come in and then they head back out, many times they become cities that, uh, where anonymity is present. And they lend themselves to anonymity. So people can kind of come in. Nobody knows who I am. They can do whatever they want in that particular city because nobody knows them. Nobody knows their wife. Nobody knows their kids. 
Nothing's going to get back to anybody. And it became a city associated with those types of things. We have young children here today with us. You can begin to, well, don't imagine it. Stop. All right, let's just move on here. Uh, I jotted a little note. It became the immorality capital of the world. And Corinth had a lot of open, unashamed sin. People doing things where, like in our day, we might say, 20 years ago, they would have never done these things out in public like they are. Out in the open and celebrated and paraded. There was actually an expression. It was to act like a Corinthian. And that's not a good expression. And so if you were acting, like maybe we say things, what are you, a barbarian or something like that? We might say that. They would say act like a Corinthian. It meant you were giving yourself over to lustful living and specifically referred to sex outside of marriage. A person that was known as a Corinthian companion was a woman that was for hire. And you can figure out what I mean by that. So Corinth was a city with a reputation. And yet this is where Paul goes. You think of, uh, like, if you ever read anything about, like, church planting, this is probably not a city that a lot of people would pick. They'd want to pick a city where there were some good, upstanding people, and there were some nice families, and we could get started, and lots of people will come, and they're making a good income, and they can tithe, you know, these kinds of things. Now, we want to go to the worst of the worst of society, the people so incredibly far away from the Lord, and we want to reach them. And Paul was like, that sounds cool. Let's do that. And that's what he did. It seems, what we know, God delights to take great sinners and to transform them into great saints as a testimony of who he is and his goodness. Now, here's the thing. That's Paul's story. Wait a minute. Paul wasn't a Corinthian. Paul didn't act like a Corinthian. Paul would have never been seen, you know, with that Corinthian woman. Yeah, well, Paul's sin was different but Paul still had a sin problem, even as these people in Corinth had a sin problem. And may I just say, as I look out here over each of you, as each of you have a sin problem, and of course, as I have a sin problem, and it was just as serious. Their problem was sexual morality and lust. Paul's pride, covetousness, self-righteousness, but sin is sin. And all sin separates a person from a holy God. And it's not until we draw nearer to the Lord that we fully realize that that is indeed the case. You may, maybe you heard this expression. I like it. It says, the closer we get to God, the less we sin, but the more we repent. The closer we get to God, the less we sin, but the more we repent. And it's the reason why many years after Paul had come to the Lord many years after Paul's conversion. He would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Look at the verse. It says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Notice that. He says, I am chief. We might expect him to say, I was chief. I was chief sinner, but then I got my act together and I've been living a good, upstanding life. Now, the closer that Paul got to the Lord, the more the glorious light of the Lord shined on his own wickedness in the depths of uh, who he was. And the closer he got to the Lord, the more he realized that he needed to repent. Sin is serious and sin separates. And the closer we get, the more we realize. Paul doesn't shy away from folks like this in Corinth. 
but he goes right to them. And one of the things, that's an exciting place to minister, to be frank, or Greg. But to be honest with you, it's an exciting place to minister, and it's one of the reasons why I enjoy going into prisons so much. And a group of us are going to be heading back in in the end of, I think, March or so. It's because a lot of times you don't have to convince those men that they need a savior. They're fully aware. They're ready to go and to hear your message. But you go off into some nice, upstanding community and sometimes, and you have to convince people, and they don't buy it. They don't believe it. What are you talking about? Paul goes to Corinth ready to convince some folks like these of their need for the Savior. And let's pick up the story. It starts in chapter 18. It says this, Now after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, that is, Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, we, we introduced this couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. There are a couple that pop up a lot uh, in the New Testament. They appear in a number of the different letters, oftentimes in greetings. Uh, they'll appear a couple of times in the book of Acts as well. They became good, close friends with the Apostle Paul, and he meets them here uh, in this city of Corinth, uh, as we just read. Notice it says that they had been living in Rome. Now, their background is that they were Jews, but they were living in Rome. They were from Pontus, which was another one of the regions further into uh, Asia. But they had moved to Rome. They were doing their thing in Rome, whatever it was. And for no fault of their own, they were kicked out of the city of Rome. As the passage says there, Claudius, now he was the Caesar at the time, Claudius had decided no more Jews in Rome. Get them out of here. For whatever reason, anti-Semitism, it just stirs itself up again and again in the history of our world. And I believe it's from the devil. And once again, the anti-Semitism, it has stirred itself up. Claudius decides all the Jews out. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, why? What do we do? I don't know if they said that, but probably thought that uh, thing here. We know historically this is right around A.D. 50, A.D. 49, to be a little more precise, when Claudius decided to do this. And these two are forced from their home, forced from their friends, forced from their acquaintances, forced from their business and how either they ran a business and made money or they had a job of some sorts where they made money. Everything that was familiar to them, they were forced away from and at no fault of their own. And they had to go to a new city. That's pretty crummy, don't you think? But God is going to bring from that crummy situation something good. Something very, very good. And so no doubt as they were packing their bags, if they had time to do that, and they were kind of meand like making their way out of the city thinking, where are we going to go? This is the worst. I can't believe this is happening to us. God, we tried to honor you in all of this. God's going to bring them to a place where he is going to bring great good from this crummy situation. A lot of us know this verse. And sometimes we like hearing it. We like telling other people this verse more than we like to hear it ourselves. But it's this, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to the purposes of God. 
We like reminding other people of that because it means they're in the crummy situation and we're not. But the reality is we need to hear a verse like this. We need to build our lives on a verse like this. We need to be reminded when circumstances come against us at no fault to ourselves whatsoever. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves and, and well, you're to blame. And we can, we can deal with that. But at no fault to our own, the situations come. We need to remind ourselves that even in that, that the Lord can bring good, as he does with this couple, who are very much called according to his purpose. And so uh, we have these guys. Listen, circumstances are going to come in every one of our lives that we want no part of. Just give it time. Events, occurrences that we would never choose for ourselves are going to come into each one of our lives. But the longer I live, the longer I've tried to walk with Jesus, the more I realize the truth of that scripture, that God does indeed use all things for his good. God is wise. God is loving. God is good. God is able. And because he is all those things and many more, God is going to use and God can use the very difficult circumstances of our lives to bring about good even from those circumstances. And that's what he's doing with Aquila and Priscilla. Their forced removal from their home, he is going to use to accomplish something remarkable in their lives and through their lives, which are even impacting our lives 2,000 years later. Because that's going to become clear. Priscilla and Aquila, they're going to become or they are followers of Christ, and they're going to become co-laborers with the Apostle Paul. They're going to become missionaries themselves, all because of these circumstances. Now, it's not clear, I, I kind of just stated that, whether or not Paul led them to the Lord, or if they already knew the Lord by the time that they made it to Corinth. But pretty soon after, one way or the other, they're going to come to know the Lord. What is clear is how they came into contact, what brought them together with the Apostle Paul. It says in verse 3 there, and he went to see them because he was of the same trade as them, and he stayed and he worked with them. Paul hooked up with this couple because he needed a job there in the city of Corinth. And either they provided him a job, like they were his boss, or they were his co-workers at the job he ended up getting. But either way, Paul met them and became good friends with them and co-laborers with them during his time that he was working with them. I tend to think that they were his boss because it's in the middle there. It says he stayed with them and worked. It, it kind of gives this impression that, you know, like we don't have a lot of money to pay you, but you could stay here and have food every night. Uh, and they provided for him in that particular way. Doesn't really matter, but I like to think about things. And so as verse 3 says, notice it says that their trade was tent makers. Now the Greek word there for tent makers is maybe a little more properly translated as leather workers. And leather workers, primarily their job was to make tents. Uh, and that's probably primarily what this particular job was. But what that tells us is the Apostle Paul was a skilled craftsman if he was a leather worker. That was something that he had learned and probably had to you know, sharpen his skills a little bit with, because of uh, not using it for a little while. But he was a skilled craftsman in that area. He was a leather worker and he was a tent maker. 
And according to Jewish practice, now Paul, from a young age, remember he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, at the young age was being raised up to become a rabbi. But even in that, he was taught a valuable skill. Well, what do I need to learn a valuable skill? All I'm going to do is read books and teach people. Now you need a valuable skill. The Jews believed, and it was Jewish practice, that every rabbi would learn uh, a trade. They had a saying. It was this. He who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a robber. Gee whiz. All right, but every kid had, every kid rabbi had to have a trade. And the purpose of it was twofold, perhaps one definitely. Uh, they didn't want the rabbi to become a burden on his congregation. And so the rabbi could make money for himself. He didn't have to become some burden on the people to provide. I think there's a, a fringe benefit as well with that rabbi working hard with his hands, getting up, being at a job, having the yes, sir, you know, or ma'am to the, to the boss, all that kind of stuff. He never got too detached from the congregation as well. He knew what they were experiencing and what they were dealing with. And so the, the Jews had this tendency or this uh, requirement of the rabbis learn a skill uh, as well. And Paul's, as we see, he was a leather uh, worker. He was a tent maker. Now, in our modern mission movement, you've heard the term tent making or tent makers. I imagine our missionary couples have certainly heard it uh, and things like that. In our modern missionary movement, we refer to anyone that is doing the work of ministry, but also working a full-time job to provide for their families, we refer to them as a tent maker. And so whether they go overseas and they get some job, which allows them to be in that particular community so that they can minister to the people, or they're, they're planning a church somewhere and they get a job at the Home Depot just to make some money until uh, you know, the congregation is able to grow to such a place. But we call those individuals tent makers. Paul here literally was a tent maker, but he's also a tent maker in the figurative sense that it's often used. And for the first time in our study of the book of Acts, we're seeing Paul willing to physically labor even while he did spiritual labor, so to speak. And it's not going to be the last time that the Apostle Paul will do so. But the first time, because of financial need, in the city of Corinth, Paul would go and get a nine-to-five job. Paul, in financial need, thinking, man, i got to make some money here. Hungry. <laughs> I looked at the fridge. There's not much left in it. And so Paul goes and he gets a job. In the book of Philippians, Paul would write these words. He said, look, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I've learned both to be full and I've learned to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, he would say. Don't put that up yet. Take that down. That's a surprise verse. <laughs> Paul knew what it was to have little and to have plenty. And to be in one of those two conditions because of his desire to serve the Lord. Like that's why there were times he had little, because he was trying to serve the Lord. And other times he had plenty and his needs were met. And it was because he was serving the Lord and people provided for those needs. He knew what it was to have plenty and to have little. Now, let's put that verse up there. And notice how he concludes then. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Familiar verse? You've heard it? Yeah, it's a popular one in the Christian community. We love that we hang it up above our, our door. It's quoted a lot in the Christian community. And 
respectfully, may I say, it's many times quoted incorrectly many times in the Christian community. Many times we, our kid is going out the door, he's been studying, she's been studying for a big test, and we yell out to the kid, remember, honey, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And we apply it like, you're going to be successful today, and you can do it. We have some strenuous endeavor that we have to face. And we quote this verse to ourselves, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't some, the purpose of the verse was never intended to imply that we as Christians can, can be super humans of some sorts. And we can do anything we want to because Christ strengthens us to do those things. That's not what the verse is about. What the verse is about is this. You can have nothing and have the joy of the Lord in the midst of it. You can have everything and not lose sight of the Lord in it. You can be abased and you can abound. You could be suffering or you could be, you know, living life quite comfortably in that particular instance. And who you are does not need to change. It can remain the same because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's really the purpose of the verse. It speaks of the strengthening ability that God gives us to endure any circumstance. And I think it's important to add here, not just the bad ones which is oftentimes what we apply it to or think of it through. But many people get thrown off track in their walk with the Lord in the good times. And when everything is growing great and the bank account is full and the boat is charged up and ready to be taken out on the weekend, we can forget the Lord in those times, can't we? And so we need his strength just as much in the one circumstance as we are in the other. And here in the, in the um, city of Corinth, Paul is understanding that. It's not going to be the last time that he's forced with that lesson, but he is understanding that if I don't have anything, the Lord is still my joy, and he'll strengthen me to do what I need to do. There are instances where the Apostle Paul would teach. He would get up early in the morning, go to work, and let's just pick some numbers, from like 6 to 10, and then from 10 to 2, he would go down to the square and he would teach, and then from like 2 to 6, he'd go back and he would work. And that's quite a pace. And he was pushing himself and pushing himself because he wanted to advance the kingdom. And if that's what it took to do so, then that's what he was willing to do. He began to learn those kinds of lessons here in the city of Corinth, where he was in need. And a lot of times, people are surprised to see the Apostle Paul in need. They're surprised to see the Apostle Paul working a nine-to-five. But Paul wasn't above that at all. He was willing to do it if it meant the, the gospel would be advanced. And it's where he met Aquila uh, and Priscilla. And it's where he had the opportunity to interact with these two that are going to go on to become his best friends. Maybe not his best friends, his really good friends. And so I just want to encourage you in this. You never know what God is going to do through the place in which you work and the people that you're going to interact with. I would encourage you, look at the place, your place of business where you go to work and do the things you do daily. Look at that as a mission field from which you can reach others, in which you can develop and establish important relationships in your life. And many times we spend more time with those we work with, waking hours with those we work with, than our own family members and many, many of our own friends. And so I'm encouraging you, and as I try to encourage myself in similar circumstances, 
is look for opportunities that the Lord might have for you in that place of business. Now, can I say this? Please don't shirk your responsibilities. I was evangelizing. Sorry, boss, I got nothing done, but I was talking about Jesus. Don't do that either. Christian, you should be the best employee at your place of work. So don't shirk the responsibilities that you have at your place of work. But let's all also be honest. We all know that there's a lot of wasted time that happens uh, at our places of business. Amen? <laughs> Plenty of time. What do we call it? Water cooler talk? Sports talk? Gossip? Fantasy baseball? Football leagues that are forming and you take some time? All that stuff happens at work. I know. Can't hide it from me. All right, so you waste time doing lots of other things. Look for opportunities to advance the kingdom there. Lunch breaks, getting together with folks. Look and pray for opportunities. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. Does that sound good? All right, let's, yes, please. That's some of you were thinking. I beat that horse. Let me get a sip. Sometimes when I look at the scripture, I watch the Apostle Paul, and I think I look at the work that God did through Paul. Here, I want to take a moment and look at the work that God did in the Apostle Paul as a result of his interactions with this husband and wife. I, we might look at Priscilla and Aquila, and we might think, man, they sure were lucky to come into contact with the Apostle Paul. You spiritual Christians, they were blessed to come into contact with the Apostle Paul. I think Paul was blessed to come into contact with Priscilla and Aquila. And so was Paul a gift in their lives? Yes, but I think they were a gift in his life, life as well. You see, when Paul was in the city of Athens, he was all by himself in the city of Athens. When he came to the city of Corinth, initially he was all by himself in the city of Corinth. As a lot of us have experienced you know, during the pandemic and all that stuff, it's hard to be alone, isn't it? Is difficult, and it begins to wear on us as we are. And Paul was alone in those two cities. And I believe that here, I think here we can see and ascertain fairly that one of the reasons why God brought Priscilla and Aquila into Paul's life in this particular city is because Paul needed the fellowship of a Priscilla and Aquila. Paul needed to go to a place of work and begin to kind of talk and, you know, just a little probing and trying to find out a little and soon began to discover that these guys know the Lord, or at least were interested in the Lord, and what that must have done for the Apostle Paul's heart as he began to fellowship with these others. Priscilla and Aquila were a gift because Paul, like every one of us, needed the fellowship of other believers. And it began at work, and it began at a tent-making shop, and it would soon to develop into one of the most uh, demonstrated friendships in all of the New Testament, Paul and his relationship with this couple, this married couple. The world that we live in is increasingly pushing us toward isolation. Would you agree with that? Okay. I think that's the case, and, and perhaps you'll realize you're wrong. Uh, if you don't, I'm just kidding. But the world is increasingly pushing us to isolation. And so whether it's for health and safety reasons like the pandemic and, uh, you know, the lingering effects of the pandemic that are still around and many are still experiencing, stay in your house, shut the doors, watch who you, you interact with, that is pushing us toward isolation. Interesting, the influx of social media in our society and in the world in which we live. 
which doesn't always push us toward socializing with other people or have the effect of us socializing with others. I think the abundance of media options, that you can go on and you can get anything you want on your television, whether it's cable or streaming and all that kind of stuff, drives us away from people into our living rooms for evenings of no-talk entertainment. We just sit there and we observe and we take it in. That drives us toward isolation. Think about when you go to your school lunchroom or your work lunchroom or you go to a restaurant somewhere and just kind of scan the room a little bit and see what you see. And you'll see people out together on their phones, not really together. And so all of the technology, I think everything in our society is driving us away from one another unless we're purposeful about not allowing it to. And unless we're purposeful about engaging and interacting with others and avoid that current that is pulling us away from others. You, and I can say this because all of creation this applies to, but you were created for fellowship with others. And you, if you're a Christian, you were recreated for fellowship with others, even more so, born again, even more so for fellowship with, the, with others. We need that in our lives. It's vital for our walks with the Lord. And especially for those that are watching online, uh, you may have whatever reasons that you have for being at home, and it's not my place to determine where you're at and why you're there, but you need fellowship. We all need fellowship. Well, I came to church on Sunday. You may have not fellowshiped with others by coming in. It's easy to come in a big room, kind of find a, a corner seat, smile, wave at people, and get out and have not had true fellowship with other people. We have to be proactive about it. And the Apostle Paul here, God knows he needs it. And he brings this couple into their lives here. And so if I could, I've been trying encourage, exhort is a little stronger. But if I could encourage each one of us here, pursue fellowship. My job as a, one of the pastors of this church, as one of the elders of this congregation, is to make sure that every one of us is healthier today spiritually than we were yesterday, the week before, the year before. That's like, like what, what do you do? Well, I try to help people be closer with in their relationship with God than they were last time that we came uh, to interact with one another. And so with that being said, I know that one of the key contrib contributing factors that will encourage that health is, a good, is good godly fellowship with other people. I know that. And so I'm not concerned about saying it. You need to do it. You need to pursue. I know that reading your Bible every day is going to help you in your walk with Christ and cause you to be a stronger believer. And so I'm going to encourage you to do it. And I know the fellowship will do the same. And so, friends, pursue fellowship. Priscilla and Aquila, just as much a gift to Paul as he was to them. Now, verse 5 goes on. It says, now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they imposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Athens, uh, Corinth, they're both cities in Acacia, Achaia, I should say, um, the region just south of Macedonia. So Macedonia is just to the north, and it says that that's where Silas and Timothy came from. 
Some cities up there, uh, Philippi you've heard of, Berea's up there, Thessalonica is up there. Paul had left Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica in the region of Macedonia. And as it says in verse 5, they arrived from Macedonia to find the Apostle Paul. I, I imagine they first went to Athens, asked around, and they said, yeah, I remember that guy. He took off. He said he was heading, you know, and so on. So they, they hunted him down. They found him. They connect once more with the Apostle Paul. Now, Verse 5, uh, it says, when Silas and Timothy arrive, this is what they find Paul doing. It says he is occupied with the word. Some take that to mean that like, that was his full-time job. He was occupied with it. That, that somehow the finances had come, he had had enough where he didn't have to be tent-making every day to put food on the table, and he had the ability to, that he could be teaching full-time. doesn't say for sure one way or the other, but Paul, in his free time or in his nine to five, whatever it might be, is teaching and he is preaching the people of that particular community. We know this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and I'll just give you this little side here. If you want to do some side reading this week to amplify or supplement this passage, uh, 1 Thessalonians is a, help, is a good one um, to read because Paul would write to Thessalonica from Corinth. Uh, and so some of the things that are going on in him as he is writing uh, is helpful. You may also want to read the book of First and Second Corinthians to get some insight in the things that Paul taught them years later when he left the city of Corinth. That's the things that those people were dealing with. So those two books might be helpful. But in Second Corinthians chapter 11, it says this. Now, and when I was with you and was in need, when I was with you in Corinth and in need, I didn't burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. He could have added, you know, I worked as a tent maker for a while. And then the brothers who came from Macedonia, we just read Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. It was likely them that brought a gift from the churches in Philippi and Berea that would provide for Paul's needs to full time give himself to ministry and not have to do it on a part-time basis. What we do know is that Timothy, whether he brought the money or not, it was there when Timothy, shortly after Timothy got there. What we do know is this. When Timothy did arrive, one thing he did bring with them was an encouragement of what was going on in Thessalonica, what was going on with the believers of Thessalonica. And so I think we may have it for the screen. Maybe you want to turn there in your Bibles. But uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and Paul wrote that book from Corinth, he would say this, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and in all our affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What a statement that is. Like what all Paul really wanted to hear was that these guys were walking with Jesus. And now I'm living. Verse 9, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And so maybe Timothy brought some money with him from the churches in Macedonia. What he definitely brought was news with him. And the news was very good. 
The people in Thessalonica, their faith was vibrant. Their love was vibrant. They continued to think fondly of the Apostle Paul, he points out, and others. He, he points out how they longed to see Paul. We'd love for him to be back here again teaching us. Paul's prayers for those people had been answered. And it, that news brought great joy to the Apostle Paul. He said it brought me comfort. In the difficulties I was facing, the great distress, the great affliction, man, just to hear that you guys are doing well brought joy to my heart. How did Paul's time in Thessalonica end? Not real good. They chased him out of the city. Here now Paul is, with the clarity of hindsight, able to look back and say, you know, it was all worth it. It was all worth it because they're walking with the Lord. They love the Lord. May, the, may God continue to do that work in their lives. He was able to see that God was answering his questions. And no doubt that brought an infusion of life, encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Verse 6 goes on. He says, And when they opposed him and they reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. That sounds awful. We'll talk about it. From now on, he says, I will go to the Gentiles. I think the infusion of the, the word that came from Timothy encouraged Paul to handle a situation like that. Here we go again. People opposing me, people blaspheming me, reviling me. Pretty soon it's going to be the rocks. I wonder what jail they're going to throw me in. And Paul was able to keep on going because, as I just said, with Thessalonica, he's thinking it was all worth it. And now it's going to all be worth it. Whatever happens, it's all going to all be worth it in the city of Corinth as well. So verse 5 said that Paul was occupied teaching the Jews and the others uh, there. Notice in verse 6, it says, And when they, that's referring to the Jews, and when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments. And he said what he says there. So some received, but some rejected the Apostle Paul and his teaching. They opposed him. They reviled him. And you see here, Paul's response is to shake out his garments, it says here, and to move on to others. Some didn't want to hear. And Paul shakes out his garments and he moves on to others that did want to hear. And he may have done that literally. You, you've heard where they would shake the dust off the sandals of their feet. He may have done that literally. But he certainly did it in a figurative sense. As what it means is he rejected their rejection. Paul wasn't going to stop doing what God had called him to do just because there were some folks that didn't like what it was that God had called him to do. And so there were some Jews there in Corinth that opposed him. And so Paul just went to others that didn't oppose him, who happens to be the Gentiles. You may try and minister to some folks at work, some family members, a lot of us do that, neighbors. My wife and I, we have a neighbor. We just want to be their friends. And they're not that interested in the old couple across the street. Uh, you know, they, and we try, but all right, that couple likes to talk to us. Let's go talk to them and spend time with them. But there are going to be times in our lives where people aren't interested in what it is you're trying to do. They're going to oppose you. Don't let that stop you from doing what it is that God is calling you to do. Keep doing what it is that God has called you to do with those that do want to hear and with those that are interested. He says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We know this about the Apostle Paul. He had a very strong sense, it's my duty to reach the Jewish people. 
Right? He talks about it a lot. We see every city that he goes into, he goes into the synagogue first. He had a very, very strong sense that it was his duty. He said in Romans 1, <coughs> he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Then he says, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That sums up his ministry efforts, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But when his message was rejected by the Jew, Paul wasted no time changing the direction of his endeavors and going to the Gentiles if they're the people that would listen. Now, it's important to understand Paul didn't stop going to Jews. He did not speak to another Jew for the rest of his life, life or something like that. In verse 8, just a verse down, look one verse down, it talks about the relationship he had with a guy named Crispus. Sounds like a serial, but a guy named Crispus who was the ruler of the synagogue. He went, he talked to him, and that man believed. So Paul didn't stop talking to all Jews. In the next chapter, we're going to see he goes to the city of Ephesus. First place he goes, to a Jewish synagogue. So he's not like, that's it, I'm done with Jewish people. I hate those Jewish people. Or something like, he was a Jewish people. Or a person, as proper English would dictate. But what it meant was, here in the city of Corinth, if those people aren't interested, well, there's a lot of other people that still need to hear. And so Paul, he goes to the Gentiles. Jesus said this, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. In many ways here, that's, maybe that was in Paul's mind. You know, I'm, I'm not going to keep casting my pearls before those who aren't interested in them. And they're just going to simply trample them under feet. And so when people are determined to reject, let them reject. And go on to those that are interested in hearing. Notice what Paul says there in, in verse 6. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Now, that kind of sounds like, like lightning bolts, you know, coming down kind of thing. That, that's not what Paul was getting at. Paul wasn't saying, I hope you get beaten in the head or something and you bleed. What Paul is saying there is, uh, I've been faithful to do what I was supposed to do. I preach Jesus to you. Now you are responsible with that message and what you do with it. And that's how Paul approached his ministry, wisely approached his ministry, that it was up to them now. I was faithful. Now it's up to you to respond. I think he has in mind here the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, from the Old Testament, he said this, God speaking to him. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning for me, from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I'll hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness, excuse me, if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. The idea of saved yourself, the, the consequences of not being faithful and speaking to them. Heavy words? They're very heavy words not just for Ezekiel to apply to himself, not just for the Apostle Paul to imply to himself, but they're heavy words that should be laid on every single one of us as followers of Christ who have the same burden to speak a word of warning 
to those that God has placed in our lives as well. There's something that is referred to as blood guiltiness, that you could have intervened, you could have stepped in, think of it in the natural, and you could have prevented something from happening, not my problem. You know, you're just as much to blame because you could have intervened and prevented that from happening. And the word that is spoken here to Ezekiel, if, that if Ezekiel failed to discharge the duty that God had placed upon him, then he was going to be held responsible for not doing what God had called him to do. And we have to ask ourselves these questions. Are the expectations of you and I any less considering that, like Paul, we have the words of eternal life? Are the expectations any less of each of us? I don't think they are. Listen, I don't like hearing it at all. But I do think we need to take it into account. And so the Apostle Paul, he did all he could to reach the, the Jews there in the city of Corinth. They made it very clear, we're not interested in what you're selling. And so Paul left the synagogue, verse 7 tells us that, and he found a place where people would want to hear, people would want to listen. And as it says in verse 7, notice he didn't have to go very far. Where's he go? He goes right next door. I'm sure the Jews love that. As he went right next door and people began to, you know, file into that guy's house and he began to teach them there. He finds a guy named Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God. If somebody rejects what it is you're trying to do for the kingdom, shake it off. It hurts sometimes. Shake it off. There are plenty that do want to receive it and find those individuals. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Um, Lord, even as we, we bring the time to a close, a challenge at the end there. And Father, I'm sure every one of us in this room, unless maybe we just became a Christian yesterday or so, every one of us in this room has had an opportunity to point someone to Christ, and we, we've chickened out. We've rationalized in our minds, oh, what are they going to think of me? Or... This may ruin our relationship. Or I'll just be a good person and they'll, they'll see. Or maybe I'll just wait till they ask me. And then when the day is done, we haven't told them. And then the week is done and the year is done and eventually perhaps even a lifetime is done and we never told them. And Lord, like Paul has said, in many places, you have given us and entrusted to us as Christians, those of us that are followers of Christ, the words of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would lay on us as well a burden to communicate that word to those that don't yet know. 